Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Welcome to part two of our discussion on concussion. Um, If you tuned into the last podcast, you'll remember that I've been talking with uh, Dr. Brett Jarris, who's quite an expert in this area, probably the leading, I would say, um, chiropractor in in this field. And last podcast, we were speaking more about what happens at the moment of concussion, some of the pathophysiology, uh, what to look for in assessment and and management, particularly uh, on the field. One of the things, though, as chiropractors that we're going to see probably more of is the people who aren't quite recovering from uh, concussion uh, in the way that we would like them to. And this is the uh, the persistent post-concussive syndrome that you uh, may or may not have heard of. If you haven't heard of it, about it, don't worry. You're going to find out a whole lot more information about it as I'm joined again uh, by our special guest, Dr. Brett Jaros. Uh, Brett, thanks for making time to come back again on the ACA podcast. Oh, not a problem, Anthony. Thank you very much for having me. Look, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, so let's get straight into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, first of all, maybe we'll define what, what is persistent post-concussive syndrome? Yeah, so when we look at the concussion symptoms and the concussion diagnosis from the last podcast, we should see that people recover clinically, so symptom recovery, from concussion in an adult should happen in less than 10 to 14 days. So within two weeks, an adult should have clinical recovery from their symptoms. In children, uh, they've got up to four weeks to recover from those symptoms. So concussion, the symptoms should resolve in 10 to 14 days for adults within four weeks for children. The definition of persistent symptoms post-concussion is that the symptoms persist beyond the two weeks in adults or beyond the four weeks in children. The difference between this persistent symptoms is that the consensus group suggests that it does not reflect a single pathophysiological entity. And there may be coexisting and uh, confounding factors. And and that bit there is where this becomes very, very important because we go to start to look at this particular condition in a very multimodal, very multi-system way of examining. And it's a very, very thorough examination that needs to take place. And uh, I know we're going to go into this further and this is where we can start to look at different groups that they will uh, suggest make up the persistent symptoms. And these groups we can look at as being a neurocognitive group, a uh, cervical spine group, a vestibular ocular motor group, and then a, uh, depends which research you read, a physiological or a dysautonomia or a uh, exercise intolerance group. So we're talking about that ability for uh, the physiology of the autonomic nervous system 
to be working appropriately. So again, persistent symptoms beyond two weeks in adults and beyond four weeks in children uh, is where we get the definition of persistent post-concussion symptoms or post-concussion syndrome. And it is about symptoms uh, in terms of the classification. So consensus talks not about, you know, this sign or this test. It talks about these symptoms going longer than either four weeks um, in a child or, or two weeks in an adult. What are the symptoms that you're um, thinking about with concussion? Yeah, there's well, there's actually a number. So the uh, post-concussion symptom scale actually will list 22 wow. different symptoms that have been shown to be related to concussion. Now, when we look at those 22 symptoms, that's a lot of different injuries and a lot of different uh, complaints and diagnoses uh, can have those symptoms, of course. So headache being a very common symptom, dizziness is another common symptom, uh, feeling in a fog, we can have behavioral changes, uh, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, fatigue, uh, memory difficulties, concentrating, lots of, lots of different symptoms. But the big ones that tend to be there a lot, of course, are the, the, the headache, the dizziness, the, the, uh, the sort of the mood, memory, uh, behavior sort of uh, changes, light and sound sensitivities, nauseousness. So let, let's assume you've got a, a child who's um, had a knock to the head on the on the weekend. Uh, parents concerned uh, that they've experienced a bit of concussion. It's now Wednesday, so let's say three days uh, uh, post event. Um, it looks like they may have a concussion. Is there anything in their presentation at that early stage that makes you think? Oh, this is someone who is um, more susceptible to going into that sort of persistent post-concussive syndrome phase, uh, or, or is it just, let's see how it goes, and um, some are just going to experience it and some are not? Yeah, it's a great question, Anthony, it's, and it's also a question that the uh, concussion in sport group have been trying to address, especially in that children and adolescence group is... Uh, not enough research in, in that particular population, not enough research actually in the difference between males and females either, and I'm sure that's going to be getting addressed in the next consensus meeting. But interestingly, in 2016, there was a group out of Canada in the emergency department that they actually put together a study and they looked at determining a clinical risk score to see which children and adolescents may go on to get persistent symptoms and they're trying to determine can they predict it because obviously having persistent symptoms can in child and adolescence can result in greater time away from school or even if you're at school your academic performance is less um, obviously their mood uh, can come obviously quite uh, flat and depressed especially when you're away from colleagues and friends obviously we are very social social creatures as humans so the social activities are decreased, your quality of life. So obviously very, very profound having persistent symptoms. But this study uh, did one of the first uh, bits of research to say, how can we potentially identify which kids are most at risk? And what they discovered, and they created a point system. So I'll try and do the best I can to explain this um, over a podcast. But We've got our age group. So if we say this is one risk factor, and they started to give different categories points because they found via the, um, this study that certain 
children, when they went through all the various symptoms and all the various objective tests in the clinic or in, in the emergency department, they said that these were the things that they discovered held the most weight at predicting the risk for persistent symptoms. So if you're between the ages of five to seven, they said there's you don't get any points for that. There's not really a risk factor score for that. If you're between the ages of eight to 12, though, they gave them one point. And if they were between the ages of 13 to 18 and you, you had uh, a concussion, you got two points. So they categorized the age group, five to seven, eight to 12, 13 to 18. Now, just by that age group, immediately you got categorized as zero, one, or two points. Then if you were a male, you got zero points. But if you are a female, you got two points. So right. now all of a sudden we look at this and say, if you're a female adolescent between 13 to 18 and you've just had a concussion, you've immediately just been given four points. Wow. Now just jump, jumping ahead to paint this picture, the risk cutoff scores are high risk for developing persistent symptoms in a child adolescent. is someone that gets between nine and 12 points. Yeah. So just the fact that you are female adolescent, you've already got four points on the way to nine mm. to suggest you are at high risk of developing persistent symptoms. Then they had another category, which was if you've had a concussion before or you haven't had a concussion before, you got zero points for that. Now, that concussion before, you had to be able to get well, the symptoms had to resolve within a week. So if I just define that again, if you had no concussion, you got zero points. Or if you had had a concussion before, but the symptoms resolved within a week, that was also zero points. But if you've had a concussion before and those symptoms lasted longer than a week, that also gave you one point. If you'd had a personal history of migraine, and the answer was yes to that, that gave you a point. Mm. If obviously you didn't, you got no points. Uh, the, the next one's tricky, obviously answers questions slowly. If they are slow cognitively to respond, you got to, and that was the answer, uh, you, your um, outcome for that question is you think, yes, they were slow. That gives them a point. But if you, you felt that they answered timely, then the answer, uh, the score for that was zero. Now, tandem stance, this comes from the uh, modified balance error scoring system. So yep. we stand heel to toe. Yep. And if we look at the best here, we just sort of have to break this down, but that test involves you having your non-dominant leg. So ask the person, which foot would you kick a ball with? And they would say, I'm going to kick it with my right foot. So the right foot goes in front, the left foot goes behind, and we are heel to toe mm -hmm. in our tandem Romberg stance. We put our hands on our hips, and then we have the patient close their eyes. Now, what we're looking for is over 20 seconds, how many errors they make. So if the patient opens their eyes, that's one error. And they, they immediately close their eyes, and the 20 seconds obviously just keeps going. If they take their hands off their hips, that's another error. If they step out of position, that's another error. Of course, stepping out of position or falling, and that's another error. Hopefully, obviously, you're always there to catch them in case they fall. Yes, of course. Obviously, obviously, we've got to be beside them. The other part of that test is if you see them from their waist leaning more than 30 degrees to one side and they stay out of position uh, for more than five seconds, that gives them another point. So, oh, another error, I should say. 
So with that uh, tandem stance testing, if someone makes more than four errors or they're just simply unable to be in that position, that gives them a point. Hmm. So, so far we've got an age group category, a sex gender category. We've got a longer symptom duration category, migraine, answers questions slowly, tandem stance, and then the final three are if they have a headache, that gives them a point. If they're sensitive to noise, that gives them a point. And if they complain of fatigue, that gives them two points. Mm. And it was over nine points is where they're at a higher risk, is that right? They're at a higher risk. So between nine and 12 points is the high risk for predicting that these people will uh, persist with their concussion symptoms. Well, I guess rush back to activity if any of those uh, things are starting to show up. Yes, and now there's also on that uh, predicting persistent symptoms, um, and just we will talk about this more in detail, but we're going to talk about the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test just here because what they showed is that using that test, which we will expand on, and they showed that if you compare someone's resting heart rate and then you compare the heart rate on the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test, and if that difference between those heart rates was less than 50, then that was 73% sensitive and 78% specific for predicting delayed recovery in concussed adolescence. Right, wow. And one more. And if we do the, um, the symptom threshold on the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test, if they do the test and they develop symptoms at less than 135 beats per minute heart rate, these people were 45 times more likely to have a recovery that lasted longer than three weeks. And is that great regardless of age, that 135 beats? That one one was regardless of age. Right. So we've got that one there being just across the board. We've got one, uh, two studies there that have shown we've got risk factor scores within the emergency department. And we've got this other Buffalo concussion treadmill test, which we will expand on in a bit. So, um, um, as to how. Sorry, you. Uh, what I was going to ask oh, I was now. Say, we'll expand on how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we're cutting across each other there. Um, so yeah, we've got now, and, and I guess there's obviously a bit of a crossover here because I wanted to talk about assessment. I know there's a fair bit of detail um, in this uh, part, and this assessment, while we're talking about persistent post-concussive syndrome. This sort of assessment is really something that you would do, I'm assuming, um, with most of your uh, people that are, that come in and complain that they've had a, a concussion. Um, so whether they're a week into it or, or four weeks and still having problems, these assessments uh, are still going to be pertinent. Would that be right? Uh, absolutely. So the, the one thing here with the uh, Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test or the exercise tolerance testing or the graded aerobic testing, whichever way we want to look at labeling this test, this uh, should be getting done from the start, not just when someone's got persistent symptoms. And the reason this should be getting done from the start is out of all of the evidence that exists for helping trying to manage concussion symptoms, aerobic exercise has the single most evidence 
for a therapy. Right. Okay. And well, let's let's dive in there, and we'll, we'll kind of try and break it up. So, with assessment, obviously, you're going to do a, um, a comprehensive case history. I'm not sure. Is there anything in particular that you needed to highlight in the history, or is it more the uh, assessment that are the key points? Um, obviously, because of the other factors that are in there, that that history needs to be obviously comprehensive, where we're asking them about the mechanism of injury. It'd be nice. A lot of people now with phones um, obviously have uh, video footage that yes. the parents are filming things. So if they've got video footage to be able to see that, you might be able to review whether or not one of those significant um, things were seen with loss of consciousness, tonic posturing, etc. And then you're going through asking the people if you'd had a concussion before. If so, what assessments did you have done? What treatments did you have done? How long did it take you to recover? how many concussions have been there uh, previously, and you go through that same history of concussion, asking about previous histories of learning disorders or uh, mental illnesses, particularly depression, uh, because these things are also known risk factors for persistent symptoms, looking at then asking the person, what symptoms do you have now? That's where your post-concussion symptom scale is a great outcome measure to have, having a look at how their symptom tra trajectory has gone since the injury. Are they improving? Are they worsening? And so other, uh, other things with neck pain, focal neurological deficits, because even though we're talking about concussion here, we're still trying to differentially diagnose whether or not this is a concussion or persistent symptoms post-concussion or whether it's a more significant um, you know, brain bleed, things that require an immediate referral for imaging, or is it something completely different? Is this person dizzy and the actual trauma dislodged the crystal from the otolith and the person's got BPPV? So we're doing yeah. a very, very thorough history here. And then when we move into the assessment, as I said, the, the, the single, if I could, for the people who uh, listen to this podcast, the one thing I want to put on top of your list is trying to make sure you get this person assessed on a treadmill because that ability to do the treadmill test and determine what heart rate this person should be starting to perform aerobic exercise at is, as I said, the single best uh, bit of therapy that we have got. And there's, there's more that we can do, but if there's one thing, this is the one thing to make sure that we're doing. So let's jump into the Buffalo treadmill test now. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, so basically we just need a, a treadmill that has the ability to have an incline on it. And what we do is we have a person walk on the treadmill at five and a half kilometers an hour. And the treadmill starts off on a 0% incline. Now, the way that it's going to work is that every minute – you are going to be asking this person, do they have any symptoms? And so you're going to be looking for symptom reproduction or symptom exacerbation. And every minute you're going to be looking at a heart rate. So we need to either have a heart rate monitor on them with like chest strap or wrist strap or a pulse oximeter. We can't use the sensors on the treadmill. They're just... Uh, tested between using a heart rate monitor and the actual sensors on the treadmills. And I've seen up to like 20 beats per minute differently. So we need to make sure that we're using a pulse ox or a, an actual heart rate monitor. Yep. 
So every minute, we're going to assess their heart rate and record that. We're going to ask them about the presence of symptoms, and we're going to ask them about how hard they think this task is, and that's our rate of perceived exhaustion or, or exhaustion or the Borg scale. And we've got two different versions of that. People can have a look at that online and just download the pictures off of Google. We've got one version that's 0 to 10, the modified version, and we've got another version that's 6 to 20. I won't want to worry about going into the details with that, but we're going to ask them about the exhaustion because where this study uh, and, and the treadmill test becomes very, very useful is that every minute you ask them about the RPE, you ask, ask them about their symptoms, you record their heart rate, if everything's going well, they've got no symptoms and they're not feeling completely exhausted, you then increase the treadmill by 1%. Yep. And then basically every minute after that, you're going to continue to do the same thing. What's the heart rate, symptoms, and exhaustion or the effort they're putting in? If everything's going okay, the next minute you put it up by another 1%. Now, this is elevation, uh, incline. Correct, incline, about. sorry, yeah. yeah. The incline goes up by 1%. Yeah. So after we've reached the max incline on the treadmill, let's just so we can understand this person, I have seen clinically, I've only ever had two people ever get to the point that the treadmill's gone beyond the max incline. Now, most right. treadmills are about 12 to 15% or degrees as an mm -hmm. incline. But once you get to the max incline on the treadmill, you then start to increase the speed by 0.6 of a kilometer an hour. Right. So it's every minute the incline goes up until the treadmill maxes out, or you, after you've maxed it out, you start to put on 0.6 of a kilometer an hour every minute. So we're recording the heart rate, we're asking them about symptoms, we're asking them about exhaustion, and we are doing this basically until the patient fails. And so this is where the patient either reports to you that they've reached a maximum exhaustion effort. So basically 19 and a half on the standard Borg scale or nine and a half on the uh, modified scale, or they have an onset of new symptoms. So they've been sitting there on the, on the treadmill walking away and then all of a sudden they go, I am feeling you know, completely nauseous and they've never been nauseous before. Right. So a brand new symptom or the person has reported to you in the history that they've been suffering headaches and lightheadedness, as, the, as an example, and on the treadmill, as they're walking, you're asking them, so how's your headache? And they go, no, it's fine. How's your headache? No, it's fine. And then all of a sudden, they report, my headache has increased by four out of 10 now. So it's a four out of 10. We immediately stop the test if we see an increase of greater than three out of 10. Right. And then as soon as we stop the test, so let's just theoretically say I'm, I'm got the person on the treadmill and so far they've they've got up to six degrees on the incline they're walking away and then i ask them all right how's your headache and they go yeah my headache just jumped up to six out of ten right. we immediately stop the treadmill we grab that person's heart rate and we have a look and we say their heart rate at that point in time was at 119 beats per minute as an example yep so their symptoms spiked at 119 beats per minute. That's the heart rate that we are now going to use to determine how a person does their exercise at home. And we're going to be making that person do exercise at 80% of that heart rate. Right.
and I think I remember it was tw- that, and that's for about what twenty minutes a day, most days. Twenty minutes of the a week. day for basically five to six days a week, and they're working at eighty percent of their heart rate. And also, we let them know that if they feel that their symptoms come on, that's okay. But again, as long as the symptoms don't increase by more than three out of ten, if the symptoms do increase by three out of ten. They just stop the session and then they go back the next day and they do it again. And when do you elevate that? Assuming that they have, you know, they've been working out at 80% uh, of 119 beats per minute, Mm -hmm. 20 minutes, five to six times uh, a week. Um, When do do you go, okay, now elevate it to to the, the next level? Yeah, perfect. So what then happens is that if they're tolerating that, so let's just say in one week so you've got a choice here it can be one week or two weeks depending on who you're dealing with so if you're dealing with an athlete you could potentially go with the question of increasing it by um, five beats per minute every week the standardized uh, approach by letty who basically came up with this um this this model is that you wait two weeks of getting them to work at that heart rate and then at two weeks of working at that um, heart rate, if they've been tolerating that exercise, you can then increase it by five to 10 beats per minute. Uh, for myself personally, I've found that working with uh, some of these, obviously, elite level athletes, we've been able to put their heart rate up by five beats per minute every week, which would be the equivalent of doing it 10 beats per minute every two weeks. Yep. So I have utilized that clinically. But if we do look at the like the standardized research, it's every two weeks, you increase it by five to 10 beats per minute if they're tolerating it. And you keep building that until they get to 85 to 90% of their age-related max heart rate. And you calculate their age-related max heart rate by? Yeah, so the the formula for that one's an interesting one. So it's you're going to get 0.7 and you multiply 0.7 by their age, and whatever that number is, you subtract that number from 208. Right. And that will give you your age-related max heart rate. And so if we've got someone who's obviously at 180, we want to be getting them to the point that they're at 90% of that. So we're looking at about that 160 mark. Yeah, right. And so we're going to keep progressing them. So if that example was at 120 that we said before, 119, so we say, let's just say we're starting them off at 100 beats per minute. So every fortnight, if they're going well, they're going to go up by 10 beats per minute. So it's going to take them at least 12 weeks to be able to get up to that 90%. Right. And this is a very effective and very safe way to start helping people get back to activity, get back to sport, but most importantly, help them to recover from their symptoms. And are these, the the 12-week program you're talking about, is this for people who have persistent post-concussive syndrome as opposed to the person who got a bit of a knock on the weekend and uh, felt giddy and has a headache but, you know, neurologically seems reasonably sound? Yeah, so the thing for me personally, seeing it in clinic, I like the idea of utilizing this for everyone anyway because I've seen the people where it's we use the graduated return to play. So the standard return to play protocol is I copped a bit of a knock on the weekend, 
we uh, suspected a concussion and got diagnosed with a concussion by the, uh, the team doctors or the team health provider. And then they rest for a day or two. And then they just start doing activities of daily living that don't provoke their symptoms. So if they're able to do that at home and they're, you know, doing the cooking, cleaning, going to work, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, all that stuff, and they've got no symptoms, then the next day is they say, now you can start to introduce some light aerobic exercise. And that idea of just like walking or stationary cycling at a slow pace, but there's no heart rate component to that. Mm-hmm. But if you can do that without symptoms, then the next phase is that you then start to bring in sports-specific exercise. So that's more you're doing drills, but you're not doing drills really with the team. You're doing some maybe if it's basketball, you know, you're, you're dribbling and doing some just shooting on your own and maybe things like that. And if you can do that without symptoms, then the next day you might progress to training with the team but it's non-contact. Yep. And so you start to do all of the you know, passing drills and shooting drills and, and, and those types of things, and that's okay. And then the next, uh, if you get through all that without any symptoms, then you can move on to full contact practice, but that requires medical clearance for that. So you need a medical doctor to clear for that. Right. And then once we can then get through a full contact practice with medical clearance, we can then return to sport. All right, now the other thing that we obviously are interested in is vestibular and ocular motor uh, screening or the VOMS. Mm. This is a whole podcast in of itself. Um, yeah. So maybe we could just uh, touch on some of the, uh, the important tests and if they're present, how we, might, um, how we might rehabilitate in those areas. Yeah, absolutely. So very simple. We ask the patient if they've got a headache, if they're dizzy, if they're nauseous or if they've got fogginess. And we ask them to rate those four symptoms out of 10. And that's what we're going to do. Ask them that before we even start the tests. Then we're going to ask the person to do smooth pursuits. So you're going to give them a target in front of them, and they're going to follow the target right and left a couple of times to each side. And then as soon as you finish the tests, you're going to ask them, does that reproduce any of those symptoms, headache, dizziness, nauseousness, and fogginess? Mm-hmm. And if it does, just ask them, what do they give those symptoms out of 10? We would do the pursuits horizontally, and then we'd also do it vertically. And we're asking them again, does that reproduce any of those symptoms? And rate it out of 10. We then do saccades. So we then give the person two targets, right and left, about three feet apart. And we ask the person to rapidly look at the left target, right target, left target, right target, 10 times. And again, does that reproduce or exacerbate their symptoms? Score it out of 10. Then we do the same thing vertically. Then we get them to do accommodation, basically. We bring a target in towards their nose. Ideally, it's like about a 14-point font. So you get the letter E as an example in 14-point font. Cut that out, put it on the end of a, you know icy pole stick. Mm. Bring that letter E in towards the person's nose. You ask them to report when they see double, not blurred, only right. double. Yep. You as a practitioner, look at their eyes and see are their eyes actually converging. We're not worried so much in this test about the actual accommodation of the the actual pupils constricting. We're looking to see do the eyes obviously converge medially. And if you see one eye or both eyes no longer starting to move in, we stop the test. Or if the person reports that the vision got doubled, we stop the test. And we record the distance from the tip of the nose to that point we repeat it three times we get the measurements 
And of course, we again ask, did that reproduce any of those symptoms and score it out of 10? We then get them to do a VOR where we put that target up in front of them again. We set a metronome to 180 beats per minute. We ask the patient to look to uh, keep their eyes looking straight ahead at the target. They turn their head to the left. They turn their head to the right, about 20 degrees, and they're doing that in time to the metronome of 180 beats a minute. So tick, 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 tick. Yep. And again, we ask them, does that reproduce any of their symptoms? Then we do the same thing up and down in a yes, yes motion. Same again, 180 beats a minute. Tick, 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 tick. Does that reproduce any symptoms? We're doing 10 repetitions of each of those. And then the last one's a visual motion sensitivity test. We ask the person to stand up. We get them to put their thumb out in front of them, outstretched in front of their nose. And then at 50 beats a minute on the metronome, we ask the person to rotate their whole body from their legs. So their hips, their trunk, their neck, their head is a, a solid block and they turn everything to the right, so the thumb's going with them, and what'll happen with that is the background behind them moves, and so that creates some visual motion disturbance. Yes. And again, at 50 beats per minute, we ask them to do five repetitions of that. Does that bring on any symptoms? That is the standardized VOMS. Myself, personally, I, at the uh, conference the other week, I demanded more from our group, and that demand for more is there are objective things that we can look at in those tests. Mm. And when people are doing any of those eye movements, naturally we look for pathology. And that pathology being, does the eyes actually move together? If we see one eye moving and one eye not, we're thinking about obviously uh, muscle palsies and ocular motor nerve and abducent nerve types of problems, which may indicate for us to go and get um, other imaging for concerns of uh, more red flags. So naturally, we want to be looking objectively too. But then there's things that are not the red flags and the pathology, but more the dysfunction. And the analogy of watching someone at the gym lifting weights and they're doing a bicep curl and you see them with the barbell and they're bringing the bar up towards their chest and then lowering it down. And then all of a sudden you see them lifting the bar up, the right arm's coming up and that left arm struggling to come up. And they do that a couple of times and everyone around goes, geez, you need to work on that left bicep of yours, that left bicep struggling. The same applies to your nervous system. So if we look at those pursuits and the eyes being smooth, we want to see that they can follow that moving target smoothly and there's no jerky eye movements in there. If the eyes are jerky, that can be an indication that that reflex, that particular pursuit movement, is not doing its job as well as it can. And we might put an asterisk next to that thinking, that might be something that we need to rehabilitate or target in our treatment. With our saccades, we're looking at how quickly the eyes actually move and the reaction time of how these eyes move and then understanding our neuroanatomy. And again, as you said, Anthony, this is a multiple podcasts in, in one go here, but understanding there's different areas of your nervous system responsible for the reaction time of a saccade and there's different areas of your nervous system responsible for the speed of the saccade and there's different areas of your nervous system responsible for the accuracy mm. of the saccade and all of those things as we develop our skills 
to not only look at the symptoms that the VOMS tests produced, but to look at those objective findings allows us as practitioners to better help serve that person that's in front of us with the rehabilitation strategies that we choose to use. So just to uh, go over that so people um, can understand and remember these points, so the the vestibular ocular motor screening or VOMS is effectively a smooth pursuit, so um, following eyes side to side uh, and up and down times two, saccades, which are the quick eye movements, times 10, horizontal, vertical, near point convergence and you're going all the way in and looking for the eyes converge not and not worrying about anything else the vor which is at the metronome and we do that, sorry that, to interrupt there anthony when we do that three times and we get a measurement on average of those three and what we are looking for there is in adults we want to see that they're within five centimeters on average and within ch- with children it's within six so they can get it five centimeters in terms of closer to their nose. Tip of the nose, yes. Gotcha. And then the VOR, and of course you download your app, metronome app on your phone. That's the easiest way to do it. That's 20 degrees side to side, 10 reps. Correct, at at 180 beats a minute. So they do that left and right, and then they do the same thing up and down in a yes, yes motion. And the visual motion sensitivity, so this is you plant your feet, but you move your whole body as a block looking at your thumb, and that's the one at uh, 50 beats per minute, five times each side. Correct. And how do, what's the evaluation uh, with that in terms of the scoring? So we score, obviously, the symptoms before we do the tests out of yep. 10, headache, yep. dizziness, nauseousness, fogginess. Yep. Each time we do a test, we then ask if any of those got exacerbated and what it was out of 10. Now, as it relates to identifying concussion, what, and this was a study back in 2014, and I've got a couple of other little bits we can expand on. But they showed that any individual VOMS test that had a total symptom score that went greater than two, or if you had the convergence testing that was more than five centimeters, that was suggestive of concussion. But what they, convergence, if you put them together in combination, that was very clinically useful in identifying concussions. So... On top of the symptom score and the near-point convergence findings, what they showed that if we combine the VOR, the visual motion sensitivity, and the near-point convergence tests together, those three tests and getting symptoms on all of them and having a near-point convergence greater than five, if you combine those three together, that was clinically useful in identifying concussions. Where it got a little bit different was originally that study showed that it was designed for patients older than the age of nine. So what happened with kids? Now, a study last year in 2018, they showed that uh, this uh, the VOMS can actually be used in children as young as six. But what they showed that was a little bit different because in neurologically normal, non-concussed children – they would demonstrate that they might fail one test or they would get symptoms after doing at least 10 saccades, horizontal or vertical. So in that study, they they therefore suggested that if you got symptom provocation on the saccades after two or three, so less than 10 reps, or they had more than two failed 
test elements, so pursuits and saccades or saccades and VOR or VOR and convergence, they show that having more than two failed test elements is more likely to be pathological in the setting of a head injury. And then getting to the rehab of VOMS, I'm assuming that if someone shows uh, a weakness with one of those, that they, their rehabilitation involves doing that at a lower level. Is that correct? It, it is, Anthony. Now, the one thing I just want to paint a picture here for uh, the people who do, do decide to listen to this is that if we look at understanding the neuroanatomy, and I want to just point out this particular fact as it relates to the VOMS and the VOR component of VOMS. So the VOR, our vestibular ocular reflex, is that signal from the vestibular apparatus into the vestibular nuclei via cranial nerve 8, the vestibular component of it. From that vestibular nuclei, it then sends a signal to your abducens nucleus, cranial nerve 6, to your lateral rectus, and then via your medial longitudinal fasciculus, the abducens nucleus talks to the ocular motor nucleus, and that goes to my medial rectus. And in turn, what that results in is if I turn my head to the left, my eyes move to the right. Hmm. And why this is important to understand our neuroanatomy, because your pursuit pathway uses that. But your pursuit pathway then adds layers to this. So if I have a target in front of me and I have that target move to the right side of my vision, my right parietal lobe follows it. Well, technically, my occipital lobe sees it. Because it's moving, the signal then goes up into my parietal lobe. My parietal lobe sends a signal down to the ipsilateral brainstem on the right, which then goes across to the contralateral left cerebellum, which then sends a signal into the left vestibular nuclei, which then sends the signal into the abducens into ocular motor three. So this is where it becomes important because if we design our rehabilitation exercises, if you say, I saw someone have a smooth pursuit deficit and I want to rehabilitate that, if someone has got a vestibular ocular reflex that's not working, that pursuit rehabilitation is going to be very difficult to do because it needs the vestibular ocular reflex in order for it to work properly. Mm. And so it's very important for our group to start understanding. And even if we look at the uh, rehabilitation, uh, the, the statements are if a vestibular or ocular motor clinical profile is identified – targeted rehabilitation strategies should be implemented mm. and those strategies are based uh, on approach and you match the therapies to a specific clinical profile but even if we look at the original uh, study from voms and and his words were if you see abnormal findings or provocation of symptoms with any of these tests that may indicate dysfunction and it should trigger a referral to the appropriate healthcare professional for more detailed assessment and management. So if you as a practitioner have gone through vestibular assessments and the VOMS assessment and rehabilitation, you may have the tools to best help that person. But if you don't, what the research is suggesting is to make sure you get that person to someone that has the knowledge in this field to get that person the appropriate targeted rehabilitation. Time for a sensible referral, sounds like. 
Correct. So um, one thing to finish off with the, the cervical spine, obviously we're going to be looking at that from a, from a, a biomechanical perspective, but you also talk about uh, cervical flexor endurance. Yeah, so we've got a couple of tests where we can talk about, say, the, the, the cervical sensory motor style of testing. So the cervical flexor endurance testing, we can lay a patient on their back, get our manual sphygmomanometer out, and roll that up and place that just under the person's neck so it's just abutting their occiput. So they're not actually laying on it with their skull. It's resting under their neck, abutting the occiput. And you pump that sphig up to 20 mils of mercury. You show the patient the actual dial of the sphig. And then what the person's going to do is they're going to perform a gentle chin tuck without using their SCM. So we're trying to use our deep neck flexors. They perform a gentle chin tuck, and we're looking to see that the sphig measurement goes up to 22, so from 20 to 22, and that the person can then hold that for 10 seconds. If they can hold that steady, it comes back down to 20, and then you give them a rest for 10 seconds, then they go back up to 24 this time. And if they can maintain that for 10 seconds, they then go back down to 20, let them rest there for 10 seconds take them up to 26 this time. And what we're trying to do is we're going to go up in two millimeters of mercury increments. And the ultimate goal is to try and get them to be able to do 30 mils for 10 seconds. What's considered dysfunctional is anything less than 26. So if you see that they can't keep that dial right on 22 or 24 or 26, if it starts to move, then we stop the test and they get scored at the level that they actually pass. So if you start to see that the dial actually wavering at 26, that means that you know that they can do the 24, they failed at the 26, and that would be considered dysfunction of the deep neck flexors and indicate that this person needs to do endurance training of those muscles. And of course, there's a lot of uh, research and evidence now behind uh, deep neck flexor training in whiplash uh, and in concussion. But there's also some additional tests, things called the smooth pursuit neck torsion test. And we can start to look and see, is the neck actually influencing the person's ability to follow the movements? We did the smooth pursuit in VOMS and we said follow the thumb side to side. With the smooth pursuit neck torsion test, they follow the thumb side to side. We have a look and see is the eye movement smooth or are they jerky? Then we hold the person's head still. We ask them to rotate their body under their head to 30 to 45 degrees, a bit like the Fitzritzen test for cervicogenic dizziness. Once their body is rotated to one side, we then ask the person to follow the thumb again doing a pursuit. And what we're looking for there is when that body is torsioned, which is going to load the afferents in the neck, do you see that the pursuits started to become more jerky when that neck is loaded? And that may give you an indication that the person starts to require to do cervical rehabilitation to actually help them out with some of these reflexes from their eyes that are going on that the neck may be having an influence upstream. It is a podcast that I expect people will want to listen to a few times to really get the understanding of what you've uh, expressed there and 
perhaps more importantly, uh, the next time they come, they see you on a uh, on a seminar, um, they go, you know, make the time to go out and actually hear you in person because that was really excellent. Um, one question I've got just as our last little roundup, just in terms of the uh, return to sport or return to school, what are some of just the, the key simple things that people need to sort of be aware of in terms of advice to patients and parents? Well, the first thing is don't rest. Um, that I just want to polarize that. People, unfortunately, have got access to information. And if you jump on Google, which a lot of people still do, uh, to try and get medical advice, uh, the research, not even the research, the information that comes up is it tells people still to be resting in a dark room, the cocoon therapy. And it's rest is only 24, 48 hours max. And we want to start getting people getting activity and it's that aerobic activity, light aerobic activity. But if you've got the treadmill test, you can be more prescriptive with that advice. So we want light activity. If you're a child or an adolescent, the focus is on graduated return to school. So we're trying to make sure that we can build the kids back up in school and we're having the teachers and the school aware of the injury and we're making accommodations at school to allow more time for homework, maybe allowing them to be doing half days, um, being able to be in different environments in the room, having breaks from school. So we want that return to school is priority, but the activity, actually doing symptom limited physical activity is absolutely appropriate and we want them to be doing that to help them. And then our return to sport protocol is once we're getting people returning to school, then we can start having the process of returning to sport. And we mentioned those things before about basically symptom lim limited activity first, building up that aerobic exercise. Then you can introduce some sports specific exercise into the non contact training drills, into full contact practice, then into the return to sport. Brett, that's an awesome summary. We've delved uh, pretty deep there, but I think there's some great information for um, chiropractors and indeed all um, health professionals working in this area. Thanks you so much for your time and for doing this uh, double podcast. Not a problem, at Anthony. Um, yeah, anything we can do to try and help uh, get the message out there and better help serve our community and, and the people who unfortunately go through uh, some pretty horrible times with this condition, I, I think is, um, is, is well worth sharing. Absolutely. Uh, now that's it for me. Thank you so much for listening and hanging in there because I know it was a tough podcast today, but gee, it was some good information. I hope you found the podcast uh, hopeful and, and helpful rather in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. <music>